Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital business revolution by speaking with the business executives and thought leaders who are profoundly changing how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Tony Apoff, CEO of Thomas, a century-old family-owned firm making the transformation from publishing and media to data-fueled information and digital services. Tony's had a dynamic career in the media business and has always pushed conventional boundaries to drive innovation and deliver new value for customers. Tony, welcome to the Cloud Wars Live podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. Hey, Bob. Thanks very much. It's great to be on the show with you. Tony, to get started, please tell us a little bit about Thomas, because I guess one way to look at it is the company was doing just fine for 100 years in the publishing and media business, and then a couple years ago, you come along, and the company gets turned upside down. So, you know, what's the story? And and perhaps this is a bit of of a metaphor for what a lot of companies are going through as we use this term of digital transformation. But... 2018, we're celebrating 120 years since the founding of uh, Thomas. It's really a remarkable story. And the the founder of the company, Harvey Mark Thomas, had a a really unique understanding that in the early stages of that phase of the industrial revolution that was happening in the United States, there was a struggle for engineers or procurement professionals or people managing factories to be able to source product and to be able to evaluate and select suppliers who might need to you know, make something in a custom way for them. And he came up with the Thomas Register, which became a very, very large business. Obviously, that was a print business. Yeah. They were innovators in the early days of the web. And then in 2006, they burned the boats on the shore, stopped producing print, and I was recruited to the company a couple of years ago because the company continued to do well, but was running more as a kind of a series of silos and, yeah. and perhaps not leveraging, if I can use the expression, the digital exhaust of all of these product yeah. searches and engagement that customers were having. So as an example, every second someone downloads one of our product oriented data files and every two seconds a buyer selects a new supplier on our ThomasNet platform so that data i think we're wow. at two wow. and a half petabytes of buyer behavior data suddenly we kind of woke up and said well that is a huge value <laughs> of the business and how can we better use that data to support the user and then also we make our money through advertising by connecting buyers and sellers together a wild story there tony and clearly you know that thread that you mentioned of the data that comes along you know whether you call it exhaust or other things like that the way it's created entirely new companies who've done who've jumped into this and you know they're, they're data companies but i think what's remarkable too is seeing not only in the sort of industrial business, like so much of your huge community that Thomas leads, but also in some ways the intellectual property types like your firm as well. But whatever industry, whatever the operating model, whatever the, the traditional products have been, this ability to harness the data, the exhaust, the insight and all that into becoming sort of the future for the company, that, that seems to more and more become a, that's become a standard across all industries. And you get to sit, Tony, uh, and your company looking across lots of, can you give us a couple examples of, you know, where you see this huge change in industries? It is fascinating, Bob. So if you look at, just, I'll give you some background numbers and then, yeah. and then go forward with it. So in any given month, we have a, a low of 1.5 million to a high of a little over 2 million users of our platform who, again, are sourcing very specific products and or suppliers to manufacture a product for them. And so 
give you a perspective, it breaks down between engineering and procurement and then what are called MROs. So these would be maintenance, repair, and operations, people running a factory floor. So simple example would be an engineer at Tesla that is designing the next generation battery for one of their cars. And they might be looking for a manufacturer to customize something very specific, or they may be looking for a very specific type of product. About half of our usage comes from active registered users and about half are open. We don't mandate registration, we encourage it. If you register, what you do is you unlock up to 205 different filters so that you can find the needle in the haystack if you Uh will. You know, so an example of a filter would be ISO certification. So as we do that, what's fascinating is now we're able to kind of look at and go, well, gosh, if Tesla and then Toyota and companies like that are examples of what's going on in the auto industry, what's in demand? What are they Uh looking for? And so we're now finding where we didn't think of that as huge value for the business. It just was an output of what the business did. Now we're suddenly looking at that and saying, hey, if we anonymize that, that's really interesting. It looks like <laughs> yeah. we're seeing a surge in steel sourcing, or we might be seeing a surge in electronics or whatever it might be. We have over 72,000 categories. So there's obviously a wealth of data there. But to your point and your question, we are seeing some fascinating trends. And one of the things that we've done with that is we simply produce now a, a weekly demand report. We push this out via video in an email newsletter where we simply look at the top 10 products and services that are being uh, sourced. And so what it does is starting to give industry a sense of its own data. Because if you think about these types of markets, it's not like there's a point of sale system. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's not a barcode yeah. scanner for yeah. every time someone sources steel. So to yeah. a certain extent, we're serving as a proxy for demand, if that makes sense. So you've jumped really upstream into the, the workflows of these companies rather than just sort of retelling them, here's what some of the broad things are that are going on. Yeah. And, and I think, Bob, you know, look, I hesitate to use the term workflow tool because it sounds like one of those bad marketing phrases. Yeah. But to a great extent, I think that's apt. You know, I think we have become a Bloomberg terminal, if you will, for many of these types of of users. And then their use case, appropriately used by us, gives us a tremendous amount of insight into what's happening in various aspects of the market. So, yeah, I get what you're saying there about the workflow. And, you know, Tony, the other piece that sort of ties into this and what's so interesting about this reinvention of the company that, you know, you've been caught in to help accelerate there is budgets are always going to be important, right? You know, and, and you see this, uh, of course, you know, the financial end of this is so important, but it seems to me like these days in the digital economy that the asset of time, or, you know, maybe better put the asset of speed in decision-making and all of those things, the pursuit of opportunities, who can move most quickly to keep pace with these rapidly changing and profoundly changing demands and needs of customers, whether that's a business or a consumer, are you seeing that sense, Tony, that time is becoming a, really a competitive differentiator unlike ever before? Well, isn't it really, Bob, the ultimate commodity? Yeah. You know, I mean, it really is. And, and I, I think to your point, what's fascinating about the era we're in, and certainly we're feeling the benefits of this at Thomas, both in the way we run our business today, but also in the value we provide for our user customers and advertisers, is the value of real time. It used to be that the idea of data, the way you and I might have thought about it years ago, was a trailing indicator. It was something Mm -hmm. we saw a a month later or Mm -hmm. a quarter later, and we'd analyze it and how'd we do? We have a survey instrument to understand impacts of things that we did. And I remember at at one point, midway through my career, thinking I was excited because we were only a week lag. How great (laughs) was that? But, you know, 
this, this nature of real time, and it gets, again, a bit of a buzzy cliche, but it's so true today. The ability to have access to real time dashboards of data and information allows me to move at speed. And that is really a huge benefit. We spend a lot of time trying to think through how do we just provide that as a service for our users? You know, how do we, how do we give them all of the data and information they need any way that they want it at any time that they want it? Because that benefit to your point of speed is something we want to pass on, that it is, it is remarkable. And I think we're just beginning to understand the impact of some of that. It's funny, Tony, that's something I wrote a couple of years ago. I remember I floated this idea. I said, I don't mean this as a formal title, but you think about every organization needs at least one of these, maybe a few, but the chief acceleration officer, because you know, on the demand side of things from customers, and then you look out to competitors and you know the, the shifts that happen in industries, these are going to come up. And I did get a couple inquiries from people. They said, oh, tell me more about this you know, position, the chief acceleration officer. But it's, you know, you're a CEO from the, it's, it's a mindset that everybody in the company has to have, right? Not just not one person pounding away, yelling, you know, ramming speed. Well, think about the implications of what you're saying, right? We're all products of our backgrounds and our environments. And, and if you think about decision bias, right? Decision bias is based on our previous experiences. And so in most businesses, whether you're new to the company or you've been at the company for a long time, what sets in over time is areas where you've sunk a lot of cost and other things become your decision bias as opposed to speed. So you think to yourself, well, gosh, historically it's taken us three years to launch a new product. So we're planning a new product. So boy, if I did that in two and a half years, I am well, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hitting it out, out of the uh-huh. park here. Uh-huh. I think increasingly, the tools are available for us today through, in our example, agile development and all the different things that we know how to do today, that we have taken development times from close to 24 months down to 90 days. And that's a dramatic uh-huh. change for us. Uh-huh. But boy, it didn't happen overnight, to your point. Because, yeah. you know, you and I are talking about available techniques and technology, but it comes up against orthodoxies and culture, understanding that, hey, we can do this. We don't have to think in these kind of linear terminologies of two to three years. We can think in two to three months, right, based on the tools that we now have available. I was talking to Tony Reese with a guy at Accenture who's, you know, one of their leaders, their global digital transformation practice. And he laughs. He said, so often people come up, what technologies do I need? You know, what about this? What about this? And he said, this is a culture issue. He said, if you don't attack the culture side of this thing first, that all the digital technology in the world isn't going to help. It's so true. But you know, what's the old Drucker line of culture eats strategy for breakfast or rather some famous, (laughs) you know, Hey, your your biggest problem is in change managers is people, right? It's not the technology. Man. So true. So Tom, let's switch over and talk about the cloud a little bit. And you know, as somebody who's been involved in the tech industry on the inside as well as a consumer of it. There's been lots of periodic upheavals, right, in the tech industry, an endless stream of them. But I get the feeling that the, this thing with the cloud and AI is different. What's your view on that? Well, you know, if I give a little uh, proprietary background from what Thomas went through and then broaden it, yep. you know, o- over the last 10 years, this company has gone from a company that had its own data centers, 
multiple locations to today, we're virtually 100% commodity cloud infrastructure, both publicly facing product platforms as well as our internal business systems. And it was not an easy process, I'm sure. You know, I've been here for the last two years of that. For, I, I came for the last mile, so my part of it was easy. But you know, there, was, there was quite a transformation there. And I think a lot of that was really driven by a willingness to experiment, but also a willingness to embrace the direction of the future and what was happening there. If I kind of look at where I view some of this from a business point of view and a, a, let me call it a user's point of view, yeah. I think we're at a very interesting tipping point in the cloud. And you mentioned AI and cloud. And, and I think one of the things, if you look at the kind of basic stuff that we're all doing with the cloud, for the most point, we're taking on-premise software and moving it into the cloud. Right. I mean, really, I mean, if we just kind of generalize it, that's what a lot of cloud based stuff has been. And then there's some newer applications that are enabled primarily via cloud infrastructure. Right. You and I have had the conversation before. I, I think, you know, we, we, we have to move harder and faster into the idea of more intelligent systems. So a simple example I would give, you know, we've been an Oracle customer for over a decade. We operate on a fiscal year. That fiscal year has not changed in that decade. We use the exact same systems when we put our, our budgets together. The Oracle financials are there. Why by now we don't have a recommendation engine on our budgeting yeah. that helps yeah. us set budgets and spot trends in that. That artificial intelligence, if you will, that could fuel something like that, that's available today. Yeah. That, that's You and I aren't describing some future state there. And I think that is something that, boy, I know as a, as a business person, as a user, I really want to see us as an industry start to move into that because I think there are so many things we waste so much bandwidth on that is really just unnecessary where we could have not automated budgeting, but you know what I'm saying, the, the assisted, yeah, yeah. you know, the analytical output from artificial intelligence just combing through the data and giving us recommendations. <laughs> Tony, it's funny as you mentioned that. I, I was at a conference last week. And one of the speakers in a discussion about planning, he said, using traditional technology, he said it takes, this is for the Fortune 1000, he said it takes him 74 days to finish the planning cycle. He said, so you're two thirds or almost the full way through the first quarter of the year before you are able to finish the plan for that year. Wow. And he said, you get behind the eight ball like that. He said, you just can't catch up. And exactly telling to what you were saying about flip that arrow, right? The arrow of time, instead of reconciling what's already happened, point us forward into, you know, the best ways to go forward here, where are their unrealized assets, you know, take a lot of the BS stuff out of it. And I think it's those sorts of things that it's almost like that sort of stat hits somebody across the face with it. And after a while, they, they don't get sort of the enlightened self-interest saying, hey, this is not sustainable. They're sure going to figure it out when other companies just get that faster, more nimble, more opportunistic and customer facing behavior around them. And ultimately, I think that's one of the most exciting things about this digital transformation that you've pointed to here a couple of times is it's not in a silo. It's not just for this team or that team. You get the whole thing going. It's like the Jim Collins flywheel. Right? It, it starts humming. Bob, I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, what's interesting is I, I tend to probably oversimplify strategy at times. Um, I tend yep. to look at strategy as simply resource allocation. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's really my job. It's where do I help choose to put the resources of the company. And we end up as a company, and so do most industries, really struggling and forcing people to go through a lot of analysis 
to come up with where should we place our resources. Mm -hmm. That's another way of phrasing budgeting. And I, I think to your point, the ability to do that much faster and, and frankly, free up the time of people that are going through mounds and mounds of analysis and data and then trying to retrofit that. I think that's the, the positive side of not only cloud-based infrastructure, but particularly artificial intelligence. And I know some people feel artificial intelligence has a double-edged sword and this just a, a way of replacing human beings. I tend to see the growth side of artificial intelligence more than I do the downside of it. But boy, I, I, I'm excited about the potential of it because it cuts to your point of speed. I'd like to put the value of the talented people I have to work on things that can actually help serve customers and grow our business as opposed to doing yeah. kind of endless analytic work, if that makes sense. You know, Tony, there's something too in this having the people come to work, have the most fulfilling days, the most exciting challenges where they feel like I've got the tools here that help me do my best and contribute to the company at the highest level. And I think that, you know, as we've all seen, the, it used to be companies would interview, you know, high talented people to come in. And now I think it's the other way where the, the best, most talented people are able to interview companies. And if you don't have an environment exactly like the one you just described, you're just, you have no shot, right? In, in this war for talent. You know, it's a really interesting point. So over the last couple of years, one of the big shifts we made in terms of thinking of technology and development is we moved from having a fair number of outsourced relationships for development to a very small number of those. And if it makes sense, owning our own IP, meaning bringing yeah. more core development in-house. And that's been a bit of a migration, but it's just hugely benefited the company. I referenced earlier speed for development and all the things that come with that. To your exact point, though, Bob, it's really fascinating. As we were recruiting for development talent, two things happened. One is early on we realized they couldn't see what we were describing because we weren't doing a good job of showcasing that. If you went uh -huh. on social uh -huh. channels or our own sites and things like that, if you were a technical person or developer, you didn't actually see the company. So once we took that step, boy, we started to attract as opposed to simply have to recruit for talent. Yeah. The other thing is that momentum built on itself. Yeah. You know, people would, you know, smart developers started to reach back and say, hey, you know, I've, I've worked with a couple of folks at this other company, man, I should reach out. There's some cool things happening here. But I think it cuts to your point of you always think of the idea that you're a hiring manager. You're actually not. You're chosen. <laughs> <laughs> right. we, we don't choose our employees. We're chosen as an employer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think that's more true every day. I really do. I think that's a big deal. Well, it's uh, the culture stuff we talked about, that sense of from the traditional model of, hey, this is what I'm making. Here's the channel through which I'm selling it. Here's the price that you will pay. And by the way, I'm closed Saturday and Sunday and you know, all the other stuff. It's uh, just upside down. So that the nimbleness that companies have to have today and Tony, what you were saying too about the internal development, bringing that in when, again, not so many years ago, people would have been scratching their heads like, you know, what in the world are we doing this for? But that has been a major point of Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. He said, our job at Microsoft is not just to provide you with the software that you'll use internally, but to provide you with the tools that allow you to create your own software for your own unique needs. And I think that's been one of the reasons why Microsoft has been, you know, wildly successful here in its move into the cloud. I imagine you have some thoughts on 
the different cloud providers and who's doing well. So love to hear those. Yeah. And I too have been impressed with, I don't know if we could call it a transformation that he's led the company through, but I, I don't think that's an overstatement. Considering the daunting task of taking what they had before and quote unquote, moving it to the cloud, but also how innovative they've been as a part of that process. It wasn't simply a ham fisted financial move into the cloud. And we're seeing some of those examples too. Yeah. Right now we're about 90% of our cloud infrastructure is with AWS. And, and then the next largest chunk would be Microsoft, uh, Azure. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, we continue to be really impressed with Microsoft. And I don't say that as a surprise, but I, I think, you know, when I talk to our CTO, Hans Wald, he regularly starts to talk about some of the innovative things that Microsoft is doing. As we look across, we also work with a, a smaller provider called CDI. I would say as a first statement, we virtually eliminated on-premise infrastructure. And I'm not exaggerating much by saying that. The challenge I think you face at this stage from the buyer's point of view, we were, as an example, a very early adopter of running Oracle on AWS. And okay. again, we were an Oracle company and we did that. But now in the battle for the cloud, unfortunately, <laughs> the relationship between Oracle and AWS yeah. <laughs> is not exactly chummy. Yeah. And so it's an awkward Dynamic. So not unlike previous eras of technology where interoperability came up and how do you figure this out? I think there's a stage we're going to grapple with a little bit in the cloud wars, if you will, of how, how do we best deal with that? I also think we have, you know, some of the vendors, there's some false promises where they're really jamming you on-premise experience, but your payment schedule is more cloud <laughs> cloud-oriented, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe what we're discussing here is the maturation of an industry to, to a certain extent. You know, you'd be closer at kind of predicting and you have much more insight in terms of kind of who's winning certain aspects of it. But I'd go back to your points on Microsoft. What I'm seeing out of Microsoft is more and more and more of an open approach to the marketplace. Yes. And I think yes. at the end of the day, if, if we study our history, <laughs> we know that's what ultimately wins markets. Yeah. And it feels to me like we're seeing an interesting dynamic play out. And I will say, we're certainly not the biggest customer out there, but in our own discussions with companies, you know, we're very direct with companies. If you're, if you can't play in this open you know, world, we're going to set a, you know, we're going to set a time fuse on this. Yeah. Yeah, because, and, you know, it, it's not going to work for us. And Tony, especially like with what you said, you know, you've moved almost all of your infrastructure to the cloud. And again, for a company of your size and scale, 120 years old, that couldn't have been an easy thing. But it shows a mindset that, you know, this is the path to the future. And if you want to come along and help me, Thomas, as your customer, achieve my goals, that's great. If you want to bring a lot of your own internal baggage and I think it's one of seeing some of these instances, right, of you know, these tech vendors making their problems their customers' problems, right? Like, you know, the Oracle AWS and some other things like that. And I just think people find today business buyers, they say, I don't have time for that. You know, you, you want to get into your own little intramural spats, go do that. I couldn't be less interested because I got a lot of other choices here. And Tony, but I think it's been so wild to see companies that were regarded as you know, monolithic and stuffy and stodgy. Heck, they're only 35 or 40 years old. And, you know, we're talking about them like they're, you know, 700 years old. But the forces of the market and the forces of competition have just done some remarkable things here. And I, I think both the new cloud native companies that have done some extraordinary things deserve a lot of the credit. But I think some of these big $100 billion, $200 billion 
dollar market cap companies that have pivoted in a remarkably short period of time, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism that they are turning around to be customer facing, driven by customer success and willing to listen. And it's a maturation thing, like you said, but I think they're really getting it, especially since it's the runway to AI and the things that you talked about with AI. That's, that's going to be something that I think, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Well, I couldn't agree more, Bob. And I think what's interesting is I'd go back to something you said before. I think some of this is we're in an era of hyperchange. So change doesn't come slowly anymore. It comes very rapidly. There's exponential change happening. And this is the, the fusion of globalization and technology and all the things that we're seeing play out. I think as a result, the bigger companies are learning to pivot quicker and be more nimble. And they yeah. have access to tools that are going to help them do that. I think to a great extent, there's some positive forcing functions by smaller, more nimble, you know, let's call them cloud native type of companies that are, for, or, or, and that's always positive for, for yeah. any of them, right? Who yeah. stay, stay competitive and relevant. I also think there's a couple of interesting things that are developing that might be along generational lines, right? So if you look at 2017 was the first year that there was an equal weighting of the two largest generations ever studied in demographics. So the baby boom huh. generation and millennial generation was of equal weight in the workforce. This okay. has never, never happened before since we've had modern demographics. And I do think we're starting to see a bit of an influence from younger managers who, you know, the cloud to them is not only nothing new, it is, it, it's always been there for them. The, the, the idea of SaaS yeah. apps and stuff like that is very intuitive for them. And I think some of what we're witnessing too is a little bit of a generational dynamic here as, as well. So, you know, I don't know what comes first. Does the technology come first or the generational adoption? I don't know. I don't know when. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see it in my own company where some of the changes that we were able to enable, I think, were adopted so blazingly fast by, we're about 50% millennials. They were early adopters of this because it just didn't seem like they were adopting anything. It just seemed intuitive to them. And then I think to a certain extent, they helped bring along other parts of the culture. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I, I'm getting a little embarrassed here. I was thinking of, you know, different times, uh, you know, when my daughters were, say, in, in high school, and their behavior didn't exactly match up with my expectations. And I'd say stuff to them like, hey, I keep repeating, don't force me to keep repeating myself. You know, I'm not a, I don't want to be a broken record. And I'd get this blank look and they'd say, uh, what's a broken record? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so I, I lost my position, you know, the high moral ground there and my indignation. Uh, but th these are things that roll on constantly. And I think it, again, is, it's part of that cultural idea. What you said a few minutes ago about there's a lot of people like, oh, AI, you know, they're going to copy my soul and eliminate me and so forth like that. I think it's one of the most wildly optimistic and capable things from the way it's going to help with precision agriculture, feeding the world, medicine. Yeah education, you know, so many different things like that. And it's just barely getting out into the mainstream. So you unlock that opportunity for a, a whole new generation of developers and entrepreneurs. I think that the best is yet to come. Well, in the data that we look at uh, across the industrial marketplaces, there's a terminology you're probably familiar with that people use of industry 4.0. And it's a yeah. signal that we're the combination of cloud infrastructure, the internet of, of things, mobile applications, digital transformation are fusing with traditional industrial products and services. And it's creating quite a revolution. And it's really exciting to see. And one of the 
outputs of that is U.S. manufacturing has become wildly competitive on the global scale. Yeah. Then. Yeah. And, and we're seeing a lot more automation and robotics and other things used. And, and there's been flare-ups here and there of fear that this is going to take jobs. But I'll give you a fascinating narrative on this, that uh -huh. it, it is actually creating jobs. There's just, in some cases, slightly different jobs. So look at a military application of flying a F-15 on a mission and then using a drone. So both military applications, uh, F-15 goes up on a mission. Let's say that mission lasts four hours. In total, there's about 115 people employed, stem to stern, maintenance right. people, people that work on the plane, people that manufacture the plane, all those types of things. For a military drone to be in the air for 24 hours, there's 320 people employed. <laughs> now, it's up for 24 hours. They are different jobs. You yeah. likely don't have yeah. somebody who's fueling the drone, right, yeah. with a hose. But... They're different jobs. And I, it cuts to your point, I think, on artificial intelligence. I think every time there's a step change in technology, and we're going through one, and they're exciting, it's entirely clear that we are seeing some erosion around jobs that are, frankly, you know, we're going to automate some of those tasks. But at the same point in time, we're liberating an amount of capital that is going to create a whole series of new jobs. And it already is. I don't, I don't think you and I are describing a future state. I think we're describing the current state. Yeah, and Tony, not that you were limiting it to uh, capital, but when you said it's going to liberate the capital, think of what you said a few minutes ago about even in the budgeting and planning process, you're going to liberate that intellectual capital, too, of people who don't have to go reconciling and chasing through spreadsheets to find this and that. So I think that's one of the things I find most exciting here. And Tony, I want to ask you as we, as we get set to wrap here, so what's next for you and Thomas? You know, I think one of the things you can probably hear in my enthusiasm and excitement for our business is we look across the various, let me call them data sets that we have. So we have a massive data set in the use of our ThomasNet platform. We also have developed a software that we've had for about a decade now. We just rolled out version 3.0 of something called WebTracks. And uh -huh. it's, it's somewhat what it sounds like. It is a analytic platform of what it allows our customers they run the tags on the site and it allows them to analyze all of the digital behaviors across their websites, across anything related that happens on Thomas and some broader data sets. It's now, now running on about 15,000 industrial wow. web, websites wow. out there and growing. So as we look at those two data sets, it's without getting too far over my skis here, it's an unparalleled amount of data on buyer behavior and industry trends. So we're starting to think through, currently we use that data to improve the user experience every day and to make sure our advertisers are connecting with buyers who are in market for the products and services that they need. But now we're also starting to get phone calls from banks and private equity companies and others that are saying, hey, I'd like to buy that data. That's, re <laughs> that's really interesting. So, you know, that's an area that we're really starting to explore and understanding, you know, how our data might be helpful in other markets that would be perhaps adjacent to our traditional you know, marketplace that we, uh, we operate in. We're doing a proof of concept around an artificial intelligence application right now. Uh, uh -huh. where we have a software company that uh, built something. It's really compelling and a little early to start promoting, but in the spirit of really accelerating speed and, yeah. and also efficiency, we're dazzled by the early look at that. And so we're starting to look at that. And we're also dabbling with things like voice activation and some other things, again, always with the eye towards how can we endlessly improve that user experience and focus on that all the time.
Wow, Tony, it's, it sounds great. And, you know, it's interesting. In some of the last few episodes we've done, there's Thomas, 120 years old. We talked to um, Buhler recently, the company that makes food process equipment. They're 158 years old. Fruit of the Loom is uh, 168 years old. So it's so wild to see these remarkable, successful, proud companies that have always done good at the making of things and tangible stuff and now adding on to it. So I'm going to certainly remember that point you made right here near the end of our conversation that you had that uh, WebTrax product set up for certain things inside your community of customers. And then you started to get calls from bankers and private equity folks. And Tony, I thought you might tell them, oh, no, no, this isn't really for you. You Go along somewhere else. It is one of those where I will say, and you'll you'll laugh over this one, the first few calls we get on this, they'd say, oh, we don't sell that to people. And you'd you'd get this kind of pause saying, yeah, that's great. So how much are you going to charge? Yeah, right. (laughs) I know you don't, but how much is it? Thanks, kid. So listen, just give me the data. Yeah, anyway. Hey, Tony, this has been just a terrific conversation. And thank you so much for your time and insights. Hey, Bob, it's great to catch up and congrats again on the podcast. And I I look forward to hearing future episodes. Well, Tony, thanks a lot. And thanks to all you listeners for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live, where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital transformation and cloud computing and how those are profoundly changing how all of us live, work, play, learn and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live. And please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.